Um, it has been increasingly hard over the last several years to convince any athlete that there is no I in team. The immediate pushback, though, often is yes, but there is a me. You know, have you heard anybody say that before? There's no I in team, but there is me. If you rearrange some letters. Sometimes in a movie or a show, maybe you've heard a coach say this, but sometimes uh, you'll hear someone encourage their team that the name on the front of their jersey needs to be more important than the name on the back. On the back. Meaning, with the team name being on the front, the individual's name being on the back, that the team comes first. But, uh, with the increase of multi-million dollar contracts, shoe sponsorships, sport drink deals, pizza chain deals even, and any other company that will pay me to say I like their product deals, it can be hard to convince anyone that the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. The Hall of Fame honors teams or individuals, even jersey sales, people buying uniforms for fans. Uh, Those jersey sales increase when the right name appears on the back of the jersey. Uh, There are certain years that some of you sports fans will enjoy this, and some of you who hate sports, I'm sorry, I'll lose you in the next couple seconds. We'll get you back. There are certain years that the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then the Miami Heat, and then the Cleveland Cavaliers again, and now the Los Angeles Lakers have done really well, making a lot of money from jersey sales compared to other basketball teams. And that may have had a little something to do with that guy named LeBron James. That's right. (laughs) Oh, that guy. I know who that is. Uh, The point is, the point is, with all this treasure to be had out there in the world, all the billions of dollars out there being spent, all this treasure to be had, it's hard to convince anyone that the team is bigger than me. Uh, that there's something bigger than myself that's worth fighting for. Because, we know this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, This truth which Jesus taught in Matthew 6 obviously goes much farther than sports. Uh, We live in a time that is particularly characterized by a consumer mindset. We are in the market for products and entertainment and personal satisfaction. We want more money to be able to buy more things, and far too often we hope they will make us happy. Sometimes, uh, like we talked about in Sunday school today, I encourage you to come next week. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts next Sunday. But as we talked about there, we might even see spiritual gifts like they were something that like Santa wrapped up and put under the tree for us to open up and see what our gift is and enjoy it like it's our new toy. We might look at it like that. But church, the name on the front of the jersey is bigger than the name on the back. We were created for the glory of God. We were born again for the glory of God. We were gifted to be a gift to the church for the glory of God. That we could even experience temporary pain and suffering for the glory of God. And that reality, perhaps uh, on the other side of it, perhaps even in the midst of it, could be a joy to us. That these things could be and are for the glory of God. And today in John chapter 9, we're going to see a man who was born blind for the glory of God. So let's look into God's word together. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. 
as he passed by, as Jesus was going along, he saw a man blind from birth. This man uh, had not been in any accident. He was blind from the beginning of his life. Now let's see what the light of the world is going to do for this man who's been living in darkness his whole life. Verse 2. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, The assumption, of course, was that he was born blind because of sin. That's the disciples' uh, estimation here. They weren't asking whether sin was the cause. They assumed that. They're asking whose sin it was. And the Jewish rabbis taught that no one suffered without guilt. Bad things happen to bad people. That's the idea. And good things happen to good people. Right? Don't say amen right now. <laughs> so if something bad, like this blindness, happened to you, you must have done something really bad. But realize what this question from the disciples asks. Uh, what could this man have possibly done before he was born to suffer this consequence of blindness, if that's indeed what happened? There's only so much you can do while you're still in your mother's room, in, uh, in her womb, correct? <laughs> nice to use room for that as well. But not exactly. In order to accommodate for this a technicality of the ability for a child to be born blind because of their own sin, in order to accommodate for this, the rabbis also taught that if the mother sinned while the child was in the womb, the child could also bear some of the responsibility for the sin committed. So according to uh, their teaching, the Jewish rabbi's teaching, one of two things were possible here. One, the parents sinned and this child's blindness was the way God chose to punish them. Or two, the mother sinned while pregnant and God chose to punish the child by taking away his sight. I hope after hearing this, you have major concerns and problems with both of those options. I think it would be amazing for us to consider and think about how often we view things that way. And we don't even realize it. But we should have problems with both of those options. Uh, one of the problems, one of those problems being that the false, this uh, false sense of self-righteousness that one would feel if they were healthy under these conditions. I am doing well. I'm not unhealthy. I'm not blind. I don't have any debilitating disease. Therefore, I must be a good person, and God is blessing me for my awesomeness. That'd be the other side of that coin, wouldn't it? And that can't be the case. If this man is blind because of sin, and I'm not blind, then I must be pretty good. False. I remember the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a huge question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? But it's based on a false assumption. What is it? There are no good people. No one is righteous. No, not one. The real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's an accurate question. In the midst of this cursed world, how is it possible that good things could happen to bad people? And the short answer, God is merciful. God is gracious, and he's loving. Anyway, the disciples see this blind man and ask Jesus, whose fault is this? 
And Jesus directs them to a different mindset altogether. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind for the glory of God. Verse 4, then Jesus said, uh, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So there's a sense of urgency here. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was not going to be there to continue doing these works works much longer. Uh, The crucifixion's coming. And verse 5 says, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And it was time for Jesus to shine his light. And here was an opportunity. So verse 6. Having said these things, he, Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes. He stuck it in his eyes, okay, with the mud. I said, gross. Verse 7, and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Now, why did Jesus use his spit Why did Jesus use his spit and this dirt to make this mud? Uh, There's plenty of speculation. There's a lot of answers out there. And to be honest, I think the best answer is, I don't know. I think that's the best answer there is. Okay, but here's my favorite guess to answer the question, why did Jesus put spitty mud in this guy's eyes? Here's, Here's, I think, the best guess. So that he would have to go wash it out. (laughs) why did he put mud in his eyes so he'd have to go wash it out where where did jesus tell this man to wash his eyes remember the pool of siloam do you remember who was pictured in those rituals at the festival of booths from the previous chapters in this gospel and in the gospel of john who was being pictured by the pouring out of the waters of the pool of siloam at the festival of booths the sent one the Messiah. It could just be that Jesus wanted him to have something to rub out of his eyes and to send him to those waters to remind him of who was coming. That's the best guess. Is that it? Is that it? Do we just figure it out and solve it after 2,000 years of speculation? Let's not be so prideful, right? But that would be a great thing, for sure. Okay? These waters represent the one who would be sent. So it says in the end of verse 7, he went and washed. Regardless of why, this man obeyed Jesus and he went and washed. He obeyed this unusual man named Jesus who just put mud in his eyes. And then what happened? He came back seeing. How many of you that wear glasses and contacts, remember, if you got them when you were a a child, if you got them when you were a kid, when you first got your glasses, do you remember how amazing everything looked? I got my glasses when I was in the fifth grade. I remember being in the back seat of our car, riding down the street in town after having got them put on my face, got them all sized up, make sure they were fitting right and everything. We get back in the car and we start taking off down the road to go home. And every billboard, I'm reading them. Look at that. There's words on those things. And I'm reading every one out loud. And my family might have made fun of me a little bit for that on the way home and subsequently for the future couple of years or so. But this man, think about that, this man did not go from blurry to clear. He went from seeing nothing to seeing everything. He might have been a little pumped. 
he, he might have been making a little bit of a commotion. Do you think? I think he was. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, given that he was making this commotion, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Like, I think that's the guy. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, meaning he kept on continually saying, I am the man. Imagine these people huddling up to deliberate with them themselves and talk to themselves in their holy huddle while the formerly blind man is waving his arms and trying to get their attention. Is this the man that used to sit and beg? I am the man. I, I think it's him. I am the man. No, it must be somebody who just looks like him. I am the man. That's how this is happening, just like that. Verse 10. So they said to him, you've got some explaining to do, right? They said to him, then how were your eyes opened? How were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Amazing testimony. Pretty simple. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. He's telling them the truth. Amazing. And what do you do when when something this amazing happens with seemingly no explanation? Well, you go take it to the Pharisees, of course, and that's exactly what they did. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees this man who had formally been blind. Amazing uh, adverb there in that sentence, formally been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So, uh uh-oh, here we go. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, guess what he's going to say? He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This man gets more efficient with each telling of a story. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. This man, and they're talking about Jesus. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Blind man receiving sight. Oh, but the mud. This man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Remember, good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. So if Jesus is bad people being a breaker of the Sabbath and all, then such a wonderful thing couldn't have just happened to him. Who did the wonderful thing happen to? We'd probably be thinking the guy who's now formally the blind man, who now is the seeing man. Who do they see as having been given the miraculous, wonderful thing? They think it was Jesus. Who are the Pharisees thinking about? Themselves. Themselves. Remember the complex they have. They are clamoring for the praise of man. The best thing that could have happened to them that day is for them to heal a blind man. Jesus got to. That wasn't fair in their mind. Not fair. Okay? And remember this. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. He didn't even break the Sabbath. He broke their extra rules, which they had added to the word of God to keep people from breaking the actual law. 
Jesus wasn't sinning. If Jesus sinned against the law here by spitting on the ground, then we don't have a savior. Jesus didn't break the law. Okay? Do you sense their jealousy? What is their chief concern? It is not validating or not, it's validating or not validating Jesus' ministry. That's what they're trying to do right now. They're asking themselves, how could such a good thing happen to such a bad person? Jesus is going to get even more praise and attention after this. So don't listen to him. He's not from God. But they can't figure out what's going on. In, in their effort and their fight to maintain their prominence among the people of Jerusalem, they still can't figure out what's going on. They're divided, and so they keep asking more questions. So verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Uh, the blind man doesn't know yet who Jesus is. But he certainly thinks more highly of Jesus than the Pharisees do. And then in an effort to minimize the event, in order to make this miracle look a little less miraculous, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. If you can't figure out what happened, then maybe change the backstory. This is the method now. They didn't believe until... Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And verse 19 asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know this is our son. We know that he was born blind. So there goes their attempt there, right? But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then, and then the word of God gives us this insight here as to why the parents were so quick to say, well, just ask him. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. They were scared. Scared of what these guys could do to them. For, why would they be like that? Why would, what, would, what would cause somebody to fear a leader like that? Well, probably because that leader tried to be intimidating in an ungodly way. And it says that very thing. The Jews had already agreed and must have communicated because these people knew about it that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Excommunication. You're no longer one of us. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So this strategy backfires on the Pharisees. Uh, This guy can't possibly have been born blind. Let's get his parents out here and sort this out. But the parents only confirm the truth of the matter. And they refuse to play along or to get too involved because of their fear of the selfish religious leaders. So the Pharisees attempt to induce people's fear and get them to cower to them and fear even backfired on them because the parents don't want to go anywhere near this, if at all possible. These religious leaders were already making threats to anyone who might reject their leadership. So what are the Pharisees, what's their greatest desire? The praise of man. What did the Pharisees threaten? The rejection of man. In their eyes, the worst possible consequence. Anyways, their plan failed, so they had to go back to the drawing board. Next strategy, let's see what their next great plan is. Verse 24. 
So for the second time, they called the man. This is the man who had formerly been blind. And they say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That's their strategy. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. What's their strategy? What do you think? Same plan, greater intensity here. What do you think they really meant when they said, give glory to God? I think it's pretty obvious. What they're saying here is, you'd better do what I say. Call this man a sinner. That's what they're doing. And any other response than that will mean you're a sinner too. That's what it'll mean. And they just attempted now to corner this man. And watch out, church. Watch out for the one who says, give glory to God and means do what I say. That is manipulation. That is intimidation. That is using the name of the Lord in vain. And know this, pastors, elders, are shepherds and teachers, not dictators. The word of God is our authority. All of us. All of us. I can and should point out scripture to you. And you and I are both right to obey God's word. But you are to obey God's word because God said so, not because I said so. 1 Peter 5 commands me to not be domineering over those in my charge, but to be an example. I do not have the authority to corner anyone, and to do so would be sinful. Especially if I try to use the name of the Lord, like these guys have just done, or especially if I try to use some supposed phony moving of the Holy Spirit to justify my sinful attempt at coercion. God has gifted me to teach you what the Word of God says, but church, I am not an apostle. I am not a prophet. The Holy Spirit will not be sending me secret messages or utterances or liver shivers for you to make you do things for me and for my ministry. Not happening. If I ever say that that is the case, if any pastor or elder or other church leader says that's happening, he is in sin and grieving the Holy Spirit of God, and they must repent. They have to repent. Watch out for the leader who says, give glory to God and means do what I say. It's wrong. And these Pharisees are putting it on display right here. And you know, when your eyes have just been opened and you're no longer under the oppression of darkness, you can get brave and confident in the truth. (laughs) It sets you free. Free. You get confident in the truth of your testimony and this now formerly blind man is going to put this on display here, okay? We might even wince at some of the things he says. Verse 25. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They're stuck on that, aren't they? You can't take someone's testimony away, can you? 
You can't take that away. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. What did this man just say to the Pharisees? You got problems. That's what he's saying to them. You would not listen. They had questions. They have ears, but they didn't want to hear. And he says to them, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, shots fired. And the Pharisees heard that, didn't they? They did hear that. And the answer was no, by the way. They did not want to become Jesus' disciples. Truth, fiction, doesn't matter. They didn't want to become Jesus' disciples. They weren't asking questions to learn. They were asking questions to find fault. There's a huge difference. They were asking questions, but not to hear the answers. They were setting traps with their questions. They were adding to the pressure. They, they kept asking the same questions over and over because they didn't want to accept the answer. No matter how logical, no matter how obvious, they didn't want to accept the answer. This is denial and it's rejection in the form of questions. Verse 28, and after this little line about the Pharisees becoming disciples of Jesus, they reviled him. They hurled insults at him by saying, they said, you are his disciple. Ha! You are his disciple. They intended that to be an insult, but instead, church, that's a compliment. Right? Yes, I am his disciple. Now, he wasn't yet, but we are. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, as for this Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man keeps giving it to him. Why, this is an amazing thing. He's on a roll. He says, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He's saying, you guys are supposed to be the experts around here, and you don't know who this man is? You don't know who he is? A man born blind has been healed in Israel, and you don't know what's going on? And then the formerly blind man uses the Pharisees. Good things happen to good people. Doctrine against them. Verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Good things only happen to good people. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man... Born blind, having lived his whole life as a beggar, probably not educated, gives these religious, cultural leaders the most educated in the land this response. You are the teachers and the know-it-alls. What are you asking me questions for? As far as you all have said, sinners don't do these kinds of things. According to your teaching, they don't get this kind of favor from God. So, by your own teaching, Pharisees, you should believe that this man has come from God. Verse 34. They answered him. They say, you're right, he must be from God. 
They answered him, You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? And they cast him out. Do you remember the disciples' question at the beginning? Was this man born blind because of his parents' sin or because of his own? Well, the Pharisees just decided what their answer was to that question. They're saying to this man, you were born blind because you are such a bad person. Because you are an utter sinner. And with that, they're also saying, we were not born in utter sin. We are good. But they were born in utter sin, weren't they? We all were born in utter sin. Ephesians 2 says that we are all by nature children of wrath, every one of us. But they couldn't see that. They couldn't see. They couldn't see. Verse 35, Jesus heard that. Uh, They had cast him out, the, the formerly blind man. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? He doesn't believe yet. But he knows to respect a man who heals him, right? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. What did Jesus just say? I am the Son of Man. And he said, Lord, no sirs anymore. Lord, I believe. And what did he do? He worshipped him. He worshipped him. This is the only right response, is it not? Jesus is the Son of God. He is our rightful Lord and Master. We either bow down in worship and follow him, or we reject him. Those are our options. And this man, who had just had his eyes opened, has just had his eyes opened. He has put his faith in Jesus Christ So I guess he's about to get kicked out of the synagogue because he believes that Jesus is the Christ. Praise God. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may uh, become, those who see may become blind. Let me read that to you again because that's already confusing enough as it is. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we all so blind? Well, they're so smart, right? Uh, This question was rhetorical, and Jesus knew it. They were saying, we can see just fine, thank you very much. And Jesus said to them, if you were born blind, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The light of the world has come into the world And what we do with that light will decide our eternity, won't it? We either bow down and worship as formerly blind people and follow him, or we reject him and remain in our blindness. These Pharisees have just rejected Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees love the darkness. They call it light. They call it their freedom. They do not want to be healed. They're too good for that. They're too good for that. And so they therefore remain in their blindness. Now, having just heard this entire chapter, 
this narrative, the story of the healing of the man born blind. I have a question for you. Church, what was the greatest miracle in this chapter today? What was the greatest miracle in this chapter? And you might say, what do you mean the greatest miracle? There's only one. Jesus healed a blind man. Duh, right? And you might say, what do you mean the greatest miracle? But but no, there were two miracles in this passage. Did you see them? The first miracle was when the blind man received his sight. And the second miracle was when that blind man received his sight. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You're talking to him. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What was the greatest miracle in this narrative? The salvation of a lost soul. A sinner realizing he is a sinner and trusting in Jesus. And what does Jesus then compare this to? The blind realizing they're blind and then receiving their sight. And why? Think about this now. Why was this the greatest miracle that we saw today in John 9? Why was this man's salvation infinitely better than him getting his eyesight back? Think about it. What's, what's 15, 20, 30 years of blindness compared to eternity? Eternity. And this man got to be a part of the display of God's glory. What's 15, 20, 30 years of blindness when God intends to use it to bring glory to himself? And to use that display of his works to draw others to salvation? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God, why did you give me this blindness? It's not fair. Why do I have dyslexia? Why do I have a type 1 diabetes? Why did you give me cancer? Why do I have to struggle this with this and other people don't? What did I do to deserve this? Because bad things happen to bad people? Children of God in Christ, you have passed from death to life, eternal life. God has saved you from eternal damnation that we deserve. God has graciously given you eternal life. God has given you an inheritance with Christ. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A joint heir. God has given you the greatest prize and treasure there is or ever could be. Himself. God has given you Himself. There is no greater good than God Himself. And so there is no greater gift that a good, loving God should give you than Himself. He's yours. Bad things are bad. And hard things are hard. And we need to encourage each other and pray for each other through those hardships. But how much peace and joy could we have even in the midst of our trials if we might even think that this man was born blind or this woman has cancer 
or this young man has autism, that the works of God might be displayed. Just maybe on the other side of our physical death, because remember, for those in Christ, we will never see or taste death. Just maybe on the other side of our physical death, might we even say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me a special, unique way to bring you glory and to be a vessel that you would use to draw people to yourself. Lord, I deserved your wrath and punishment. And you chose to use me and all the messed up stuff that is in this world for your glory and for my good and for the good of others around me. All for your glory. God, thank you. And how do we get to that mindset? And here's a question we have to answer. Is God my greatest treasure? Or is he a means for me to obtain a greater treasure? If our answer is that God is our greatest treasure, we are well prepared for whatever this world could throw at us. If our question is the second, we might be in trouble. Okay? With that perspective, it's easy to see that the greatest miracle in John 9 is the salvation of that formerly blind man. And with this understanding, now we have to go back, look at the questions that are asked in this passage. Realize there are 16 different questions in this chapter uh, that drive the narrative along, and we can certainly learn from them. Uh, The very first question was related to the desire to know why this man had been born blind. Jesus' answer was so that the works of God would be displayed. The miracle working power of God was going to be displayed in the life of that man, and God was to be glorified by it. And what did people start asking the man after he came back seeing? After his life had changed? How were your eyes opened? What happened? Who did this? And no matter who was asking... Or why they were asking, what did the man have the ability to share? I was blind. He stuck mud in my eyes. I washed it off. And I see. He shared his testimony. He shared with them the truth. All he had to do was share what Jesus had done for him. He gave credit where credit was due. He simply told the truth. And in doing so, the works of God were put on display. God was glorified. So, Christian, when did God give your blind eyes sight? And you know I'm talking about the eternal life kind now, right? When did you realize you were blind? That you were a sinner? When were you graciously saved? I was 16 years old. I had grown up in the church, thinking that I was seeing, and yet being entirely blind. But God, awesome words right there, right? But God opened my eyes and I was saved. And guess what you can't do? (laughs) You can't change my testimony. It happened that way. And it happened the way it happened, when it happened, because that's what God did. God saved me. He changed me. He is changing me. And when someone asks me or when I tell someone out of the excitement about my ability to see, all I have to say was, I was blind, I heard the word of God, and now I see. And why should I have, why why should I share that? Why should I share that testimony? To display the works of God. 
to glorify him. That was why that man was born blind and healed, to display the works of God, right? Uh, If I only share my testimony to convince people, I will quit, won't I? If all the reason is for us to share the gospel is so people will believe, then we'll quit because not everybody listens and not everybody believes. But guess how often it displays the works of God? 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Christian, you were born again for the glory of God. You were born again to put his works on display. By the grace of God, good things happen to bad people. Amen? By God's grace, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, sinful people become, by God's declaration, and he is judge, they become righteous people. The lost are found. The blind see. Let's be amazed by the grace of God in our lives. Let's worship Jesus Christ, and let's put his works on display. Answering the Pharisees' question, What do you say about him? Church, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? You get to say that. Why? Because he opened your eyes. Because we were born again for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that you open blind eyes. God, thank you for opening our blind eyes. And Lord, may we see the work uh, that you have done, uh, the gift that you have given us, and be thrilled, be rejoicing, be amazed at your kindness to us, your goodness to us. And may the joy that is um, welling up in our hearts rightly pour out of our mouths that the works of God might be displayed. God, use us for your glory that way. Help us to see with the eyes of truth. And God, now as we move into this time where we remember the sacrifice of Christ, I just pray that in this time, the truth of the gospel, the truth of your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son, his blood and his broken body, God, may it continue to stir up in us again that desire, the affection for you. Uh, May we leave here ready to go. Ready to go and make disciples for your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.